the consensus I saw from Yankees fans was like, oh, down 2-1, and now this rainout's going to screw us because of the pitching. And I'm thinking like, no. I think you give the edge to the Yankees because Tanaka was that good in his first start. Getting Tanaka back on the mound is, is, is plus Yankees. Maybe for Yankees fans who are feeling down after game three, that provides them a little bit of hope. We are back another Thursday, another episode of R2C2. You know the deal. Download, rate, review, subscribe. New episodes every single Thursday. And even though CC shuts it down during the playoffs to make sure he can concentrate fully and completely on winning number 28, and it's what we did a couple of years ago, and there's definitely a superstitious aspect of it as well, when the Yankees went on that unexpectedly deep run in 2017, we this year have kept the podcast going. And our good friend, my Yes Network colleague, David Cohn, nice enough to step in as guest co-host. We got fantastic reaction from you guys last week having David in. And so, David, nice enough to join us again in the middle of the ALCS. Thank you, man. My pleasure, Ryan. You know, I mean, it's just like taking our text message conversations in-game and putting it on the air now. That's what we get to do. Yeah, I saw people (laughs) responded last night when you you threw this up. So, yeah, let's go. What do we got? Oh, man. So, you know, first of all, let's say this. We're recording this uh, late morning Wednesday and we're gonna we haven't gotten official word yet on whether or not game four will be banged or not, uh, you know, whether or not it's gonna be rained out or not. We're going to, for the purposes of this, mostly assume that it will be. Because it looks like weather-wise, it's probably gonna be canceled. So for our evaluation purposes, let's, you know, let's assume that it is likely going to. So we're recording this after the Yankees drop game three. They're down two one in the series. I just ask you this first, David. What has stood out to you most about the first three games of this series? You know that uh, the Yankees pitching has done a pretty good job. I mean, Aaron Boone calls it run prevention. I mean, run prevention is really not the problem. Even though in close games you tend to dissect every little move, uh, you know, should have left in Chad Green and not brought in Adovino, or little subtle moves that really amounted to maybe one run here or there, but. You know, in the overall big picture of things, I think, you know, it's it's really been about the Yankees' inability to hit with runners in scoring position. They've had base runners. They've had opportunities. And just that one big hit, whether it was D.D. Gregorius and a three-run home run oh. that just couldn't quite get there. He hit it a little too high. You know, those that's really where this series has kind of swung so far. Yeah, it, it, it does feel that way. Are you seeing anything in particular from the bats in those spots that stands out to you, David? You know, I, I've seen the Yankees discernibly uh, make adjustments on the fly, whether it's attacking early in the strikes in the count. Uh, We've seen them be very aggressive on the first pitch. Aaron Judge, very aggressive on the first pitch. Didi Gregorius, that's kind of his nature anyway. But up and down the lineup, I think when you're facing frontline starters, whether it's Verlander or Cole, the big fear is not to get to two strikes because they're strikeout pitchers and they have devastating breaking balls or sliders or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, that that's what I've seen is like the Yankees really looking for that first good pitch to hit. You see, I, and I, I love the point you bring up about um, the run prevention and how you end up really dissecting it more when, you know, if, if you don't hit, you end up, oh, one run. But you're right, overall, they've done a good job not allowing runs. If you look at that game too, and I know a lot of people – got on Aaron Boone for game two and, you know, maybe not having his high leverage guys at the finish line of that game. But in his mind, he's thinking, I'm 
going to see my offense score a run at some point over these next, you know, five, six innings, whatever it was. If you would have said, hey, you know, the Yankees are going to hold the Astros to two runs through the first 10 innings of the game, I would have said, where do I sign up? Like, I can't manage for, but what if they don't hold, you know, what if they don't score more than two runs in the first 10 innings? Like, you can't, you can't save your best reliever for the 13th inning just because you may not score. You know, that, that was my thought. It, it's on the offense in that game. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, the, the old hold your closer back on the road in a tie game is kind of a thing of the past. I mean, that's something that managers have been crucified for almost in, in years past. So being very proactive is the way managers go about it in today's game. And I think not only in, in a playoff series – obviously the ALCS against the Houston Astros, but you're managing against the opposing pitcher. I mean, there's so much um, so much drama surrounding how you beat Verlander and Cole, and you could see it. That's why Aaron Boone pulled Paxton so early in that game, because it was not only a playoff game, it was Verlander on the mound, and you had to stay close. And, and the same with, uh, with Cole, when you're facing Cole. Uh, if you've got a chance to beat one of those two pitchers, that swings the series and, and because they are that good. They are on top of their game. They are dominating pitchers. They can win the game all by themselves. And we saw it with Cole last night, even with his you know, B-game stuff, so to speak. Uh, he still made pitches when he had to. So, yeah, if you're an opposing manager against those two starting pitchers, you're going to manage differently. You know, I, this is a scenario that I didn't think they should have, but I'm just curious your thoughts. First and second, nobody out in the first inning, and we'll get to where Glaber was batting in a moment, but Gardner's up. And I definitely have totally been converted analytically when it comes to bunting and understanding you don't give up outs, you know, unless it's a very unique circumstance. The sack bunt is almost always going to decrease your chances of scoring rather than increase them. That's been mathematically proven out. Like we used to think, oh, runner on first, nobody out in a tie game. You bunt them over to second. It's preposterous to think it gives you a better chance of scoring than just hitting, right? We all know that now who understand the math. However, Last night, even though I initially said, well, of course, you know, you're not going to bunt here. I, for a moment, thought because Cole's so nasty. Now, I also thought, well, I don't want to just give him a freebies on the ropes. But I was like, if you, if a guy like Gardner, who has speed, is that a situation where you say, hey, try and bunt for a hit? And your worst case is a sack, and now you can get a run with an out. Now, maybe they wouldn't have anyway, because Edwin's at bat, as he had it, may not have gotten it done, right? But it was a scenario where it was selective enough, I thought, you know, because he's so difficult to get runs off of, is it worth it in this case to say, hey, maybe put some pressure on the defense. I don't want you a straight sack, but try and bump for a hit, and your worst case is a sack. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's a legitimate scenario. I mean, there's a difference between a straight sacrifice bunt with a man on first base and giving up an out. I think mathematically that has been proven that you're actually decreasing your chances a little bit. Now, there's more to it than just math, but... Uh, with a man on first and second and nobody out, it's a little different equation mathematically as well. So it, it almost becomes a plus run potential there in, in terms of the math uh, without getting too specific. But with that being said, you know, Brett Gardner batting third, it's kind of on him. If you feel like you could take a chance, at least the threat to bunt might get the, the infield moving in and around and give you a better chance to get a hit in that regard. I think that's an underrated facet of of the threat to bunt for mm-hmm. a hit. You know, you bring the third baseman in, maybe the shortstop comes in, the first baseman comes in. You you put a little pressure on their defense to move and, and compromise themselves uh, to be able to get a ball in the, you know, in, in the holes. So with that being said, too, Garrett Cole is not an easy guy to bunt on. Mm-hmm. 
throws mm. tremendous uh, high heat. And that's the hardest one to bunt. I mm. mean, of all the people to bunt, you have to take so many variables into the equation. It's not just uh, old school, oh, get the bunt down. It's it, This guy's throwing 100 <laughs> at the letters. Yeah. It's not the easiest pitch to bunt, and his sliders are usually down on your ankles. So, you know, of all the people to pick to bunt off of, he's not the easiest one. So, yes, I agree with you. The thought in the back of my mind is maybe you put it on Brett himself. Do you feel confident? Do you see something? It's part of the feel of the game that, that a lot of people talk about being taken taken out of the game, you know, that feel for the moment that maybe the numbers of the analytical crowd has, has diminished the value of that feel. Mm. Um, if you trust your players, Brett, do you see something? Do you think you can get one down? Can you do a drag bunt there for a hit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a legitimate question to ask. But then even with that being said, you're kind of giving up an out to play for one run in the first inning. Yeah. So, you know, there, there, there's more to it than meets the eye, and there's a lot of variables involved in making that decision. And and, in that, and that was really ultimately where I was like, this is why you wouldn't, because you're not giving up an out to play for one run in the first inning of a game you're already down one nothing, right? Like, it, my only thing was kind of like what you're talking about, like, if it gets the defense moving, is it something? But the execution of it is super difficult, too. And if, he, if Cole throws a 100-mile-an-hour high fastball and Gardner pops it up, and it's caught. I'm I'm saying like, what on earth? Yeah, are you, you doing? just gave an out away. Yeah, exactly. and there's only 27 outs yeah. as we know. So yeah, you know it, it's much more. There's a lot of gray area involved in that decision making. You know, the threat of a bunt though, I think is still something that can can really be beneficial to a hitter. Just making the defense move a little bit. Yeah, can can be beneficial. So you know, I, if you're going to give away maybe fake a bunt, fake a bunt on the first pitch, and you give away a fastball right down the middle that's hittable, that's another variable into the equation. So it's it's something that uh, you have to trust the player in that situation. I don't think that's a sign that could be put on. Uh, that's something. Hey, hey, Brett, you feel it? Can you drag one? Use your speed. It's on you. Mm, I know it, it's um, it's interesting. And one thing I would consider too, if I was, you know, first of all, Aaron Hicks's at bats have looked really good. I mean, he's come back and right away looked in rhythm. You know, they. I didn't realize how much they shift on Hicks. You know, from the left side, and it it didn't necessarily play a role last night. It maybe could have in the eighth or ninth inning whenever he was up last. But if I was him, I would keep that in the back of my mind for situations later in this series. If you're down two runs, three runs, whatever, and need a base runner, because you know I'd like to think he could control the bat well enough to push one to the left side and get himself on. I mean, I know it's a it's, there's some guys who you're just not going to ask to do that, right? And I'm 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 going into the mindset of the fan who watches the game and says, you know, why don't you just bunt? Look at the left <laughs> side of the infield, the shift. And I'm not I'm not ever expecting an Edwin Encarnacion or a Gary Sanchez to be able to do that and pull it off. I would never ask an Aaron Judge to do that, right? But a Hicks, and you if you need a base runner, maybe you know, maybe depends on the situation. You know, Hicks can hit the ball out of the ballpark, too, he especially can. at Yankee Stadium batting left-handed. So, you know, everything is predicated on what the game situation calls for. Um, I thought Hicks's first at-bat was dynamic. You know, he had a 10-pitch walk. He really pushed Cole. He almost single-handedly pushed Cole's pitch count up to the point where he was almost compromised. Yeah. But he really picked it up in his last seven or eight hitters and got through seven innings. And, you know, Cole, to me, really impressed me last night because he didn't have his good fastball. And when he needed to make a really good slider, he made he made it. He made some unhittable pitches when he really had to. And to me, that's next level stuff. Uh, it's easy to pitch when you have your great stuff. You yeah. know, speaking from experience, it's wow, everything's working today. I feel great. 
those are the those are the easy days to pitch. You know, it's it's when you don't have something in a big game when you can you could still find something to to get through it. And, and Cole did that last night. He made some great sliders when he had to. Can you remember? A specific playoff start, David? I mean, I'm sure there are multiple, but is there one in particular in your mind where you can remember really not having your A stuff and finding a way to pitch really well in, in a huge game and, and feeling, you know, damn proud of it and how you kind of got through yeah, it? Yeah, it was game three in 96 in Atlanta on the road. We're down 0-2. I mean, Yankee fans know the story. Yeah. And we lost the first first two games of the World Series at home. In, in embarrassing fashion and go down in game three. I really didn't have that good of stuff. I, I found a way to get through six innings, walked in a run with the bases loaded, um, got Fred McGriff to pop out after a mound meeting with Joe Torrey. I mean, it was tenuous at best. The bullpen was going in the fifth inning. Um, you know, I just, you know, I was just one of the gutsiest performances I think I ever had, but I did not have very good stuff that night. What'd you do to get yourself through it? Like if you're on the mound and you know, we need to win this game. And oh my gosh, I do not have my A stuff. Like, how do you guide yourself through a start like that then? You just never panic. You keep thinking in your mind, even if you're falling behind in the count and you get into hitters' counts, that you're still going to make quality pitches. And even if you walk a guy here or there, you're not going to ever give in. You're not going to say, I have to throw the ball down the middle. I have to get a lot of the plate with a pitch here and take the chance in giving up damage, giving up a home run in a big game. So you just you just continue to make quality pitches, and you always think in the back of your mind that you're one pitch from getting out of it. Even if you're down 2-1 and one in a count, in a fastball count, you still go for the corner. Mm. You still go for that qual- high-quality pitch, and you never deviate from, from that mindset. You know, from a treetop perspective, you know, from the 30,000-foot view of this series thus far, I'll give you the way I think about it and I'll see if you agree and, and how you kind of look at it overall. I thought game one, and we texted about this a little bit, I thought it was a must-win for the Yankees. I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't tweet that out. That's how I felt about it. I felt like, you know, you're not facing Verlander or Cole in this game. You need to win one in Houston. You got to win this game, knowing Verlander's lurking at home in game two. Yankees did. Then I looked at game two and I thought, that's a must win game for the Astros. They cannot lose both games at home and put the Yankees in a situation where they just need to win two out of three at home to advance the ALCS. They have Verlander on the hill. They have got to win. They did. I looked at game three as a must win for the Astros. I thought, you have to win that, that game at Yankee Stadium with Garrett Cole on the mound. You have to. If you don't, there is a really good chance you're not going back to Houston. They did. They're up 2-1. I feel like up until this point, both teams have done what they had to in order for this to be a long series. Now, I think the sort of regretful feeling for the Yankees or Yankees fans is those two games, the way they played out, were maybe more winnable than you would have thought, especially game two because you had multiple chances against the Astros' pen, which was an area where you thought you'd win that battle, right? And you and you were neck and neck with Verlander. And then in game three, just the fact that you had way more base runners than you probably would have figured against Cole, and he didn't have his A game, and you didn't get to him. So I understand the frustration of, oh, because you could have delivered a potential knockout blow, and you did not. However, let's say these games had had the same result, but played out like you lost 7-2 in game two. And you lost, you know, let's say let's say Cole just shoved for seven innings yesterday, struck out 15, and you and you and you lost four nothing. It it might have 
you know, you, you may have had an easier time feeling like, okay, you're down 2-1. But nonetheless, it'd still be 2-1. I don't know. That's the way I look at it through the first three. I think the teams that have had to win have won. Obviously, the pendulum then swings back to the Yankees for game four. I agree. Yeah, you know, it's uh, well stated, all all valid points. You know, the ebbs and flows of each individual game, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sways your emotions. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that's to be expected. Um, it was going to be tough to beat Garrett Cole. We knew that. Um, you know, I think the thing that's, that's potentially going to help the Yankees, you know, assuming this gets back to a game six and seven in Houston, which obviously the Yankees need to win two now in a row here at home. You have to protect home field here. The Yankees came into this series having to protect home field. So, you know, in the 2017 series, they won all three games. And obviously Houston won all four games on their home turf. That's already been upended. The Yankees mm-hmm. won game one, as you said. Houston has won on the road now in, in, in the, the third game, the first one at Yankee Stadium. So now the Yankees, you know, they have to win three out of the next four games. So you have to win these next two games. Not only is game four a must win for the Yankees, so is game five. Yep. In my mind, you have to go back to Houston only having to win one of those two games. Now I say you have to. No, you want to. You, you increase your odds. You know, the Yankees could go down three to two here and lose two out of three at home and go down and win two in Houston. But that's a much harder proposition to, to work through. And there's some roadblocks there. And the one the couple of things that work in the Yankees' favor is that we saw it with Cole last night. He wasn't as sharp, probably because he had to pitch twice in the first round. Verlander had to pitch twice in the first round and now once in this round. And he didn't look quite as sharp either in game two. You hope that residual effect will be there for you when they're scheduled to pitch again. And we don't know when that is because of the weather. Potential rain out tonight. So you still have a lot of hope, but you've got to protect home field now. You've got to win these next two games to put yourself in a position to only have to win one in Houston against what you hope is progressively getting worn down frontline starters in Verlander and Cole. See, I, I completely agree. And this is actually why I believe the rainout would benefit the Yankees. Now, the conventional thinking around this rainout is, well, this really hurts the Yankees because – now you're going to have to play four straight days, and the Yankees use their bullpen way more, and that's going to tax their bullpen. And I agree to a certain extent that is true. They do tax their bullpen. But if you think about it, you have to win three of the next four. As you just, I mean, that's just you literally do. As and I agree with you. You have got to win games four and five at home. You know, could you pull it off if you didn't? Yeah, you could. But it it's going to be so difficult if you don't win these next two at home. So I look at it this way. I say, okay, as if there's no rain, you'd have to win game four, which is your bullpen day against there. I don't know if they said who they'd start in game four. Probably kind of a pseudo bullpen game on their own. Right. So you have to win that game. Then you'd have to have Tanaka beat Granky game five at Yankee Stadium. And then you'd go to Houston and they'd have Verlander and Cole waiting for you in game six and seven. You'd have Paxson in game six against Verlander. And you'd have presumably Severino and an army of pitchers in, in game uh, in game seven against Cole after Verlander and uh, Paxton in game six. But I look at it this way. I say, okay, if the rain, as we're kind of assuming it's going to be rained out tonight as we record on Wednesday and you guys listen on Thursday morning, so you're probably getting ready for a game four now instead of a game five. Rain out happens. Now game four becomes Tanaka Granky, presumably, if all the starters get bumped up. And I'm assuming Houston's going to go that route and pitch their their starters on normal rest. If that happens, now 
you have to win the games at home regardless who's on the mound, right? Now, tanaka Granky is a battle you have to win anyway. So now you just win it in Game 4 instead of Game 5. No matter what, you're going to have to win that battle. Verlander-Paxton was a battle, you know, you're probably going to have to win. You don't want to face Cole in a Game 7 in Houston, right? I mean, you, you probably are going to have to win that battle. To me, that is an easier battle to win at Yankee Stadium for Paxton than it is in Houston. I also think Verlander is a guy who's easier to hit for the Yankees at Yankee Stadium than he is in Houston. Plus, he would have... He'd be on four days rest instead of five days rest if he pitches game five instead of game six. So now you look ahead to game six and seven and game six. Who does Houston throw Garrett Cole on three days rest if you're up three two? Well, you'd rather face Cole on three days rest than on normal rest. Or do they go a bullpen day? Now you're facing their bullpen day in game six up three two rather than in game four down two one. So that's why I, everybody looked at the rain out and thought, oh, this is not good for the Yankees because of four straight days. But I think the way it sets up and the way they have to win. I think it could actually be a benefit to them. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to slice it and dice it, but those are all valid points. Uh, you know, I, I I tend to agree with you on that. And now, I if I'm AJ Hinch, you've got a decision to make. Do you hold back? Is is your firewall? Just, you know what, I'm going to give my guys an extra day's rest. They've been through a heck of a workload already. You pitched Verlander on short rest in the previous round. Both of my stud starters had to pitch twice in a five-game series. They're going to have to pitch twice in a seven-game series. Maybe you give them, you know, uh, an extra day's rest. You go ahead and pitch Grinky in game five or whatever, and you hold them back for Houston. You know, that that's a that's something I'd think seriously about if I was in A.J. Hinch's seat right now. So uh, you knew coming in, and what this all illustrates is the value of having two aces. You've got, you know, Cole and Verlander are both front-line starters, two aces on your staff. The Yankees, no matter what was going to happen in this series, is going to have to beat one of those guys, mm-hmm. you because if they hold serve, that's four games, you know, and they're both going to pitch twice in a seven game series. There's your four. There's your four wins. So they both both pitched the first time. They both won the games that they they started. Even though you can say, well, we could have beat Ver- Verlander here or there. He did his job. Cole did his job. He, he they both won the games that they started. Now you've got two more tries against those guys. And you've got to take care of business in between and win the games that you that you have to win in between to get to them again. You're going to have to beat one of them mm-hmm. at some point, whether it's in New York, Verlander starting game five, or or in Houston. You're going to have to beat either Cole or Verlander in order to get by them. And that's the value of having two aces on your team. That's interesting, David, too, what you bring up, the decision for A.J. Hinch. If you were him, would you – let's – this game gets rained out. If you were him, would you stick with the bullpen day for Game 4, Granky 5, Verlander 6, and Cole 7, rather than slide them up on regular rest? I I think I would lean that way. I'd want to be in that clubhouse and get you know feedback from the guys themselves, from Verlander and Cole, but my gut feeling would be, you know what, we're asking a lot of these guys. Uh, they also have uh, potentially two more starts in the World Series to, to be had. You know, looking at the big picture, you can make a strong argument. You know what? I'm going to protect these guys. This is my firewall. You're my game six and seven pitchers back at home. And uh, we're going to get it done another way here in New York. We already got one game in New York. You know, if we can steal another one in New York, now you've got your firewall up three to two rather than down three to. Yeah, I think you're right. And I may have oversold the idea of just like if Verlander's on normal rest, he'll pitch him in game five and he'll pitch Granky in game four. But that's a good point. He, 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 he may say... He may even say, you know what? If we lose both, 
we lose both. I feel comfortable enough with, as you said, the firewall on the back end there. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's the argument to be made. Now, if Verlander's on regular rest and he comes into my office and says, I want the ball, you know, that's going to go a long way, too. So, you know, th- there's a good chance on regular rest that Grinky's the guy in game five. Yeah, and then they just go, uh, oh, it's so interesting. And then they just go with their bullpen game in game four. I mean, and I think in that case, it helps the Yankees a little less, right? The rain doesn't play as big a role. But the one guy I think it would still help is Paxton, you know, just because to me, looking at his two starts in Houston he's had this year, also the way he's pitched better at home in general this season, I I would feel like, you know, the Yankees would feel better about, and this is just me speaking, not them speaking, but him pitching at home in a game five than in Houston in a game six. Yeah, I think any starter would say that that you're gonna you're more comfortable pitching in your home ballpark, your home crowd. You know the dimensions, you know the bullpen mound, you know the game mound. So yeah, there's there's a lot of little things that work into your favor in pitching at home. And uh, you know, I was no different when I was pitching. I would much prefer to pitch at home. Yeah. you know, if given the choice. Let me ask you then this way, because I obviously I, f- I framed it with all my my scenarios for this. But do you believe that there is an advantage either way to game four? being rained out, and then Game 4 being Thursday, Game 5, Friday, 6, 7, Saturday, Sunday. I think you give the edge to the Yankees because Tanaka was that good in his first start, and the Yankees' bullpen has been used a lot. And it's not like you can use Chad Green as an opener at this point and get two innings out of him. If you were going to use Chad Green as an opener, as much as he's already worked in this series, you're you're probably looking at one inning out of him. So, uh, you know... all things considered, you know, you know, even with Verlander looming, you know, getting Tanaka back on the mound is is, is plus Yankees. Yeah, I, that's that's how I feel too. I feel like if there's an edge, that's the way it goes. Uh, I'm glad that we both feel that way. And maybe for Yankees fans who are feeling down after Game Three, that provides them a little bit of hope because I feel like the the consensus I saw from Yankees fans was like, oh, down two one, and now this rainout's going to screw us because of the pitching. And I'm thinking like. No, like I mean, I, first of all, you shouldn't win or lose a championship because of a rainout, right? Like a championship team navigates. But if you were going to look one way or another, I'd lean towards positive. I also, I, you know, the the analytics certainly have served the Yankees well. Much they've done much more good than they've done harm. And throughout the season, and even in the ALDS, the Yankees have had great success with their lineup construction throughout this entire year, and I get that. However, I, I just don't see how you can't have Glaber Torres batting third every game anymore. You know, with all due respect to the brilliant people who work f- for this team and construct the lineup and have done a wonderful job, you got it. He right now, he's your best hitter right now. How can you wait till fifth or sixth to see him? He he just got to be up in that first inning. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I've said it all year long. Yeah, you know, I, I know he, it. <laughs> he he had a couple of homers in Oakland earlier this year in a West Coast trip, and uh, he almost didn't get that that last at bat because he was batting seventh, and he you know because there was, I think there was a walk or something happened that allowed him to to get his fourth at bat. He ended he ended up hitting another homer in the seven hole. So uh, yeah, I think that's probably the first time I started to get get on my soapbox <laughs> and harp about Glaber Torres and where he should bat. Now, with that being said, you know the Yankees, as you said, I mean rightly so, they have more information than we have. They've made a lot of good decisions. They have good reasons. As Buck Walter likes to say, they have good reasons for the decisions that they make. From my standpoint, as an, as a pitcher, just let me put my pitcher's hat back yeah. on and, and try to get into Garrett Cole's mind last night. Watching how he approached Glaber Torres showed me that he was the guy he feared the most in that lineup. And that with Brett Gardner batting in the first inning, 
whether he should have bunted or not. We yeah. already went over that. Or whether he could have bunted for a hit. No, that's irrelevant at this point. Clayber Torres in that spot, if Cole pitches around him and walks the bases loaded, that's a whole different inning. Mm. And, you know, he he went right after Brett Gardner. I love Gardy. Don't get me wrong. This isn't a knock on Brett Gardner. But it, it does seem like he's a little bit miscast in the three-hole. He's never really been that hitter his whole career. He's either been leadoff or at the bottom of the order to create some speed and, and some disruption at the, in the bottom of the order. Suddenly, him in the three-hole, I know his slugging percentage against right-handed pitching is off the charts this year. I get it. Uh, it's Yankee Stadium. He's got pull power. Maybe he catches up to one of those cold fastballs and hits a three-run home run in the first inning. Maybe that changes this discussion completely. But just from a pitching standpoint, watching how Cole pitched Glaber Torres so carefully told me every, everything I needed to know. Mm. And if somebody you know like Cole is pitching Glaber Torres that carefully – then that tells you that he's one of your best hitters and he needs to be at the top of the order. Run scoring in the first inning traditionally is always higher, 10% higher on average over the long term. The first inning is always the one inning because your best hitters are at the top of the order. The starting pitcher is trying to settle in and get his groove and find out what pitches are working for him. The first inning is always the inning, always the inning where there's a chance to do something. The Yankees had that chance. And then Glaber comes up with two outs. And he gets pitched around. Mm. So he virtually had the bat taken out of his hands because there was two outs when he batted rather than no outs if he would have been hitting third. It's a great point. And you're so right. You could see it, right? Like, you could see it. And I could see as a pitcher, too, like, and and as you said, it's not a disrespect to Brett Gardner, who's had a great year. It's just a credit to Glaber Torres. Right now, the way you described it just paints the picture, right? I mean, Garrett Cole is, an, is the pitcher right now in baseball, and he— was working carefully to Glaber Torres. So And admitted it after the game. He's like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. <laughs> yeah. So if that's if that pitcher is feeling that way about Glaber, every pitcher is going to feel that way about yeah. Glaber. Glaber yeah. needs to bat in the first inning. Yeah. Exactly. Simple simple as that. Because think about that. Is he going to pitch around him if it's for with first and second nobody out? Is he pitching around Glaber in that spot, or is he yeah. giving him something to hit, which Glaber will? And if he pitches around him, right, like yeah. you said, now it's bases loaded, nobody Yeah, out. when I say Glaber needs a bat in the first inning, I know he batted in the first inning yeah. in the five-hole last night, but I mean in every game. Yeah. I want him to get his first at bat in the first inning, batting third, at least third. Yeah. Somewhere in your top three hitters, because he is one of your top three hitters, and those are the guys you want to stack. And, you know, Aaron Boone said something interesting in the, in the postgame about lanes. He didn't want to create too many lanes of right-headed hitters in a row for a pitcher to get in a groove. That's a valid point. You know, I get it. You know, as I said, the Yankees, Aaron Boone, their analytics department, they have very good reasoning for the, for their decision-making. And you could argue this both ways, but the one telltale is, as I said before, was how Garrett Cole views it, how he looked at Glaber Torres and how he picked him out to, to, to pitch around. And when you pitch around him with two outs in the first inning with two men on, to me, boy, that, I would have liked to see him come up third in that inning. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully he is back in the three spot um, in game four. How significant do you think the loss of Stanton has been uh, in games two and three? Um, you know, I think Hicks picked up the slack last mm. night in that game. I think his first two at-bats really kind of changed the dynamic of the game, really pushed Cole. So, you know, I... You know, Stanton's always one swing of the bat from winning the game all by himself, and he yeah. looked like he was getting really good at bats. Um, but the key is, is if he can't run, then he can't play left field. So then you're, you're Edwin Encarnacion or Stanton as a DH. 
So it's really just a bat at that point. And, uh, you know, that that's where you kind of um, you, you start uh, wavering a little bit. But he is so dangerous. One swing of the bat kind of a guy. Edwin Encarnacion's one swing of the bat kind of a guy, too. So it's almost like you've got some redundant skill sets going on. Unless Stanton can play left field, that was he. That's the differentiator for the Yankee lineup. If Stanton can play left field, and then you could still keep, you know, Edwin Encarnacion in the lineup at DH, you know, and that's assuming they keep the same defensive al- alignment with DJ LeMahieu playing first base. Would you? Now, I think for the most part, Gio Rochelle has had good at bats and hit the ball hard thus far in this series. Um, and, you know, Edwin Encarnacion had been struggling mightily. Uh, maybe the double last night gets him going a little bit that he had towards the end of the game. But would you consider a lineup, let's say Stanton can't play the field, but he can hit. Would you consider a lineup where Encarnacion is at first and LeMay is at third, Stanton's DHing, you have Hicks in center and Guardy in left, and but Urshel is then on the bench? Yeah, that's the problem. That, that really, what it hinges on is Gio or Shell, and it's not just about Gio's bat; it's the glove at third too. Yeah. So you're diminishing your defense on one end too by doing that alignment, and can that come back to bite you? So there's a lot of variables again in the, that decision uh, making process too. And you know, Rochella did. I think he popped one out to right field in Houston. You know, he's got a home run already in yep. the series. So. You know, it's that that's a that's a difficult one. I still think Stanton can be a factor, maybe as a pinch hitter. You know, uh, he's still a bat off the bench. I worry about him on the base pass, though. Yeah, because you know, you, you let him hit. You're going for the one big swing, the home run. If he hits a double, you know, can he make it to second base? Does he re-injure himself? I mean, we even you go back to uh, the Kevin Durant situation yeah. in the NBA last year, where they pushed him and they pushed him, and then he went out there and then did something worse. Um, you know, that that's something that I would guard against with Stanton, too. You don't want him tearing a quad muscle that carries over into next year at yeah. this point. So uh, you got to make sure he can run the bases, too. I mean, this, this isn't home run derby. You know, you still have to play baseball. You still have to run the bases. And if he can't play left field, you know, th- th- then that is, is a tricky prop- proposition for the Yankees. My guess is, you know, if, you know, assuming the rain out, that they probably, if he can't go in game four, that's probably when you'd have to make the decision on him for the roster and bring someone else in. Yeah, and it, it, that's you know that's why it's almost hour to hour and minute to minute with the decision making because you lose him for the World Series at that point. Yeah. So is that something you're willing to do? Uh, you know, my guess is is that as long as he can hit, you know, he still has a threat off the off the bench that you could potentially pinch hit for him. Um, you know, use him as a pinch hitter rather, even though Houston's got an all right-handed uh, pitching staff. So there's not a lefty yeah. that, that matches up for him to say to come in, say, okay, we're going to pinch hit Stanton for Gardner here. There's a tough side-arming lefty, and maybe that, that feeds into Stanton's strength. That's not going to present itself in this series. Which makes you wonder, does Talkman or Ford make more sense for that spot if you're going to replace him for the rest of the series? Well, that that's also, you know, you're, you're getting into a situation in the, you know, of – these guys haven't had big league at bats in a long time now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's that's also another thing. Even though they're working in Tampa and they're getting at bats and extended, you know, and in, in whatever in, uh, in in exhibition games down there, whatever you want to call it, instructional league games, uh, it's not the same as, as big league pitching. So yeah, that that's that's a kind of a buyer beware situation there as well. I also, I, I f- it feels ridiculous to have to say this, but just because I saw some reaction from people. 
John Carlos Stanton wants to be on the field. You know, I mean, he wants nothing more than to be on the field right now in these games. He played for the Marlins his whole career. He's been dying for these games. Dude didn't rehab for three months to just, you know, get a week and a half of the regular season so that he could then bow out of the playoffs. Like, I mean, he is legitimately hurt. And I know that, you know, 90% of fans understand that. But for the vocal 10% who don't, you really need to. I mean, it's it's... It's so unfair, I feel like, to to put that on this guy when, you know, he, he wants to be out there. I mean, you just heard Aaron Boone say yesterday he'd be on the IL if it was the regular season. It's a legitimate injury for Stanton's quad. Not to mention, he was, you know, he was having good at bats. Like, this was a guy who was producing. It's not like he was, you know, one for 20 with 18 strikeouts looking for a hole to climb into, you know? Yeah, that's true. You know, and, and we've seen this happen a lot. You know, Stanton had a knee injury, a pretty severe knee injury. We don't know to what extent, you know, uh, that's going to play out in the offseason. You know, is that is that going to need some additional treatment or maybe even exploratory surgery? Who knows? But one thing leads to another. So the fact that he injured his quad shows me he was compensating somewhere. And I've seen that with so many athletes along the way where you get an injury in one part of your body and you kind of rehab it to the point where you're pushing to get back and then you put stress on another part of your body and then that compensation causes another injury. So it's pretty uh, not that remarkable to me to see him come up with a quad injury Mm. coming off of a knee injury before. So there's some compensation going on there. You know, I don't question him at all. You know, I... We just don't know how bad his knee really was and, uh, you know, how long it took him to come back, whether he was really ready to come back or not. Did he push it? Did that lead to another injury? I mean, all of these things are are certainly legitimate questions in my mind. But if you can't play left field and you can't run the bases and you're a pinch hitter off the bench, that's the question for the Yankees, the value of that, that player. You know, is it worth it to keep him around and then retain the possibility of using him in the World Series? Let's assume he doesn't play in Game Four. I this what I'm thinking lineup wise is you know okay we we both agree it's DJ Judge Torres first three for the rest of the playoffs as far as I'm concerned. I I'm fine like I know he is not hitting the Yankees need better at bats from Edwin Encarnacion in this series but I'm fine leaving him clean up with his presence and you know his experience. I think Hicks would be the guy I might slide up to fifth based on what I've seen so far in these first two games with his at-bats and then you know after that you get into Sanchez Gardner or Shella Didi however you want to you know finish out the lineup with those guys yeah I agree you, you could play around with Hicks especially you know because he he gets such good at-bats you yeah. know he really pushes uh you know the envelope with the opposing pitcher um amazing comeback by him to be able to go back in there and get those kind of at-bats um yeah, you know, it's a valid point, without a doubt. Um, you know, can you shake it up with Hicks? Um, you know, it's uh, you could even see him back cleanup if you if you if they were worried about all the righties right. in a row or whatever. You know, you'd dump him yeah. in before Edwin. Let me just say this: if you're going to make your decisions based on right-handed hitters struggling against. Verlander and Cole, <laughs> then everybody's, you're not going to have any hitters left. I mean, you're going to have so to sit true. everybody down. Uh, Cole made some of the nastiest sliders, you know, on a night where he didn't have his good fastball. 
you know, to Gary Sanchez in particular, people talk about Gary, oh, you know, time to sit Gary, bench Gary. No, it's not time to bench Gary. Right. Uh, Cole made some incredible pitches against Gary Sanchez in particular. And I've seen pitchers like Cole do that. I did it when I pitched against a really, against a hitter like that, that you know, hey, I'm never, I'm not going to let him up. I'm going to make my best pitches against him. Somehow that always seems to work. You know, it's a mindset that pitchers have. So, you know, Encarnacion as well. I mean, they, they're facing the best right-handed pitchers in the game, in the American League, at least. I mean, all due respect to Scherzer and Strasburg, who are waiting for the next team in the yeah. next round. Uh, you know, the, Verlander and Cole are as good as it gets for a right-handed batter. And if you're going to sit guys down and, and, and demean them or say, oh, you know, they're slumping, let's make a change, you're basing that off of their at-bats against those two guys? Oh, well, good luck. Good luck finding somebody who could have hit those pitches. That's a great point. That's a great point, and it's so true. And I also think there's an element of, like, when I saw the lineup for Game 4 of the 06 ALDS, and I saw that A-Rod was batting 8th, I knew the game was over. It was probably over anyway because Jared Wright was starting it. But, like, I knew the game was over because it just exuded panic. It said, we have to be something totally different than what we've been to get us to this point. And that would be my problem with benching Gary Sanchez. Now, I understand Austin Romine has been a very valuable contributor this season. Totally get that. And when he's played in extended stretches, he has produced offensively. I get that. However, the issues with Sanchez in the past were defensive. I think he's been great defensively, save the one Britain pitch yesterday. Other than that, he's been terrific defensively so far through these however many games. And there's still something about his presence in the lineup. And if you abandon that now, you give up on the chance for the good side of what this could be. And yeah. right, I mean, if you're on the mound, David, no matter what, is it still taxing mentally to see you have to go through Gary Sanchez? Like, hey, I know I have to make pitches here. I saw it with Cole last night. He made some of his best pitches against Gary Sanchez. I, I really, I saw it. I believe it. The best sliders that Cole threw, you know, the best top five sliders he threw all night long. I think two or three of them were were to Gary mm. in particular. Um, I agree. And even with regard to the defensive side. You know, Zach Britton throws incredibly hard with unbelievable movement. The pitches were fastballs. They were in the mid-90s. They were designed to go to the outside corner. He yanked them over to the inside corner. And there's no way you can block those pitches. Catchers don't block fastballs in the dirt. Catchers block breaking balls in the dirt because they can anticipate it being in the dirt. You're looking for breaking balls to to go a little bit slower and have spin on them. And then you've got time to adjust your body and get in front of them. There's no way you could get in front of a 95-mile-an-hour Zach Britton sinker that's designed to be on the other side of the plate that gets cross-fired, the only chance was to, to swipe it like Gary did. I mean, to to think anything else is, is, is to me, is, is just uh, uninformed. It's an uninformed opinion. Catchers don't block 95-mile-an-hour sinkers that are cross-fired. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, how about um, – before we have a couple listener questions, but uh, the um, – Subject came up a lot, especially in Game 5 of the ALDS, of tipping pitches and the Astros being great on picking up on it. I mean, how prevalent do you think it is? And, you know, has there been some sort of evolution for baseball right now where it's even, you know, it's even more prevalent? 
Well, I, I think if there's something very discernible that it will get picked up on because of the video, you know, that, that every there's so many different eyes on the video nowadays that can pick something up. Uh, we saw it with Glass now in the last round where he, there was something very discernible. He pitches from the stretch. He held his glove actually lower on breaking balls and a little bit higher on, on fastballs. So something like that is going to get exposed. Uh, the rest of it. I think is paranoia will destroy you kind of a thing. You know, it's almost <laughs> as if it's a bluff. It's like it's like you're playing poker. These guys are bluffing at this point. Yeah, we got something on you. Let's get into their heads. You know, I actually saw Aaron Judge do something in the bench uh, the other night. Yeah, where he, he was it looked like it was total fake to me. Where he was trying to to get the cameras on him to look. Hey, we got something on their pitcher to get inside their head. So it really is. It's become kind of a big bluff poker game now. And you know, with all that being said, it's very hard to on the fly, you know, break the signals at second base. It's very hard to to relay that type of information. But a runner on second base actually decodes the signal calling from the catcher. Okay, you've got it. I, I broke the code. Now how do I get the signal to the hitter in time before the pitcher delivers the ball? And what if I'm wrong? Mm. You know, that's much more difficult, a much higher degree of difficulty to do. It has been done. It can be done. I think it's almost impossible in today's games because – the Yankees are have five different sets of signals. That's why the pitchers have, you know, the cards in their hat. That's why Gary Sanchez has the wristband. You know, I don't think there's any breaking of codes going on with the base runners on the base pass. Uh, but a pitcher with a glove tip, yeah, that's still very much in play. As I said, we saw it with Glass now. I didn't see it with Severino. I was watching very closely, but I did notice that Houston spit on all of his sliders. Yeah. I don't know if that's an approach thing with Houston or not. Uh, I thought Severino made a great adjustment by going to his fastball more. His fastball saved him in that start. Uh, you know, all of his swings and misses were on fastballs for the most part. Yeah, the two sliders that he made that he hung were were solo shots. Um, he did start to mix in some more changeups as opposed to sliders. Now I don't know if that's the quality of Severino's slider was off a little bit, but it seems like Houston had an approach that the Yankees have a reputation for throwing a lot of breaking balls. I mean, it's been written about in the media by multiple sources. It's been shown uh, in analytics. This is the Yankees' approach. They are a breaking ball staff. They encourage their pitchers to throw a lot of breaking balls. It looks like, to me, Houston was looking for a lot of breaking balls. And either get it in the strike zone and we're going to swing at it, and anything not close we're not swinging at. And they've been late on a lot of fastballs. As I said, Severino's fastball got by them. Mm. Um, I think Adovino's another case in that story. Maybe he needs to throw more fastballs because they look like they're sitting on his slider because he throws a lot of sliders, and right, rightfully so. You know, he, he does well with sliders. But, you know, the opposing team like the Astros, they have that information. They're going to make adjustments. There's ebbs and flows throughout a short series where there's going to be adjustments made, and pitchers are going to have to adjust back. And I think Severino did a great job of that, of going back to his fastball against a team supposedly that's a great fastball-hitting team right? that was sitting on breaking ball. So that shows you how quickly approaches can change and, and how, uh, as a pitching staff, your approach has to change along with it. With the, Right before we get to the listener questions, just because you brought them up, with Adovino, you know, it's so tough in the playoffs because if you struggle, you know, in two or two outings, three outings, all of a sudden the narrative becomes, oh, you know, this guy can't pitch in October, this guy. And sometimes it has nothing to do with anything other than rough patch, wrong time, right? But it also, because you don't have a lot of room for error, it requires the manager to make adjustments as well. I mean, how do the Yankees now go about approaching 
you know, the usage of Adam Adovino, knowing that he has struggled so far in these playoffs, um, but was a huge piece of what they did in the regular season. Yeah, it's it's tough for Adam because he's been brought in almost as a specialist. You know, his his strength is kind of the body of work. He works more. The more he works, the better control he has. He can whip through an inning, maybe even two innings at a time here and there during the regular season. And when he's brought in as a specialist, let get out Nelson Cruz, you know, all or nothing. That puts a lot of stress on a guy whose pitches move so much that sometimes it takes him a while to find the radar, so to speak, to get get his pitches where they need to go. Mm. Uh, the, the one thing about Adam, I think, that, that's become very apparent that we've known all along is that he doesn't hold runners very well. So he's very susceptible to the running game. And we saw that with Altuve. We actually saw either a run and hit or a hit and run with Altuve where uh, you know, Springer. Springer takes off running and Altuve just kind of touches the ball, makes contact and finds the hole with Glaber covering the bag. And that ends up first and third. And Adovino's night was done. So, yes, he you know the part of the lineup, that he's going to face, um, if, if, the, if there's some speed on the bases, it certainly is concerning at this point because he's got a really long, slow delivery to home plate, and he's, he's, he's going to get exposed in the running game if, if the situation arises. We have a couple listener questions, a lot of them. We had to choose some of the best ones. Um, And this one comes from Scott Allen. He says, the ball was flying out this regular season. What are your thoughts on the ball in the postseason? Several balls stopping at the track. Do you suspect a different ball, or is it just too small a sample size to know? There are a lot of really smart people that suspect something's going on. You know, and we do, we we have the radar tracking system now. You know, we we have the ability to measure these sorts of things, and the measurements look suspicious by some really smart people that I follow on Twitter, that I correspond with in email, and uh, there's no doubt that uh, there is less drag on the baseball. At least that's what the numbers are showing. You know, when you when you when you look at Statcast or you look at some of this unbelievable technology they have in the ballparks now that measure spin rates, that measure everything. Every movement on the field is actually getting measured now by Doppler radar. Um, yeah, it's suspicious. I don't have the answers. Uh, conspiracy theorists are out now. People in the on the inside are wondering: Did they switch the batch of baseballs back? Uh, it, you know, it, if it comes down to that, there's a, a wide range of variants within the specifications of the baseball. Maybe that range is a little too wide <laughs> yeah, at this oh my point. Gosh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Quality control. I mean, there are all sorts of questions that that certainly are being brought up now. Um, you know, that each individual team has their own proprietary analytics team. And even the St. Louis Cardinals analytics team said the ball's traveling five feet, you know, not as much, yeah. you know, five feet less on average. So, you know, it brings out the question of every fly ball. Oh, that would have been a home run that goes to the wall. Didi's yeah. ball, uh, you know, last night, you know, it was a, Less than five feet from a home run. I think Didi just probably hit that one too high. Yeah. It was a 42-degree launch angle. It was just a little too high for him, uh, even though it's a fly ball to right field. And the, you know, at the Mason, uh, over there, the WB sign. Over yep. there. <laughs> Those always go out over <laughs> they, that sign. That's really where you want to hit it, that big yellow sign. <laughs> that ball always goes out if you get it in the air over there. So that was especially frustrating. But I think he just hit it too high. But, yeah, these are legitimate questions about the baseballs in play. It's been a source of, of conversation and controversy all year long, really the last couple of years. 
and uh, now it's kind of flipped back the other way is, uh, you know, what's going on. And, um, you know, some really smart people think something's going on. Yeah, that makes it interesting. You know, as far as like, isn't an advantage, you know, all the teams are using the same ball. I guess it could be an advantage to those with the most dominant pitching staffs if, you know, someone's not going to be able to flick a ball out like they could during the regular season. Absolutely, because we're all using this, assuming we're all using the same balls. Yeah. You know, so it's not like uh, when the Yankees are up, they get this baseball. Yeah, right, and, exactly. Yeah. You know, and then we're going to flip. They've got a separate batch for when Houston hits. So that would be real controversy, yeah. uh-huh. but that, there's, there's that's not what's happening. It's the same baseball for, for everybody. But, you know, there, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered by Major League Baseball. I believe they are trying to address them. They have had their own stuff. Uh, they've acknowledged that something's going on. The, the baseball does have less drag. Um, you know, is, is that a quality control issue in, in the production of the baseball? The uh, you know, in the specs of the baseball, you know, and maybe they they need to take another look at that. And I believe they are. You know, I'm not a believer in, in conspiracy theories, but there are some really smart people out there who do believe that something's going on here. Jim Callahan says, in honor of Halloween, if you can build from all the catchers who you've ever worked with. To create a Franken catcher, which I, I really like this question. Jim, way to come through, man. Said, whose bat would you take? Who's blocking? Who's pitch calling? I'm going to throw in, he didn't ask arm, but I'll say whose arm and whose leadership. So, bat, blocking, pitch calling, arm, leadership. Uh, who would you take? And you can overlap, obviously, in some if you want from all the catchers you worked with. If you could build wow. them all yeah, into build one. Yeah, a, build a, wow, a Frankenstein, huh? Pitcher's uh, dream come true here. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. well, Gary Carter's going to be in there. Gary Carter was a, a great blocker of baseballs, a great signal caller, Hall of Fame catcher, uh, pretty good hitter, home run hitter in his yeah. prime. Um, uh, you know, Charlie O'Brien was a catcher that had unbelievable hands, his framing ability, almost uh, Jose Molina-like mm. in his framing ability, how soft his hands were. You know, I think when you're talking about catchers that pitchers love to throw to, it's something about the way they receive the baseball that builds confidence. Every pitch you throw, they make look good. Or, they, you know, you can, even if it could be six inches outside, they make it look like it was almost right on the corner. And that just builds confidence for you. So receiving the baseball and framing, framing ability is a real thing. It matters. It matters to the umpire. It matters to getting strikes called. And it, it matters to the pitcher's confidence. So uh, you know, Charlie O'Brien would be in that mix. Um, uh, Joe Girardi for his mind. Mm. How quick he was for me, his signal calling, his ability to read hitters, uh, he would be part of that as well. Uh, you know, signal calling and demeanor would be Girardi, framing ability would be Charlie O'Brien, and mm. then Gary Carter for all the rest. I love mm. it. Fantastic. Um, and how about uh, Joel Tomei? We don't know if he's related to Jim. Might be. He asks, which analytics stat or tool would you find most useful would you have found most useful while you were pitching? The high-speed cameras, without a doubt. Uh, you know, the, the I was obsessed with spinning a baseball. I still am, you know, and I'm a little jealous that these guys can now do pitch design based on some of this information. Spin efficiency is so important. Even if you're just measuring different ways to grip a four-seam fastball, you know, how does that four-seam fastball spin? How is it coming off of your fingertips? Is it efficient? Is it holding its plane? Does it have a little life on it? Does it have a little fade on it, which is what you don't want on, on your four-seam fastball? I think you absolutely can use that to your advantage. And that's just one pitch, much less trying, okay, let me try to grip my slider a little different. How's, how's it spinning? You know, the axis of the spin, the spin efficiency, the movement, 
these, these are all things that can help any pitcher nowadays. So, you know, I, I think that was the funniest thing I saw in spring training this year was about a half a dozen major league teams scrambling to buy these high-speed cameras and get them on their fields at the last minute. It mm. seems to be like a lot of teams are playing catch-up. I think a lot of this stems from a company called Driveline Baseball based up in the northwest up in the Seattle region. And uh, they started to to put these cameras together with pitch design. Trevor Bauer was a, was an initial uh, part of that, one of their early uh, early uh, guys that went to it and improved his pitch design with it, his spin, his overall uh, tunneling ability, the ability to make all your pitches look the same and then break different directions. So, yeah. That's what I would want. I want to buy some now and play wiffle ball with them and evaluate the spin on the wiffle ball. But yeah, without a doubt, the Yankees have it now too. I think they used it with Tanaka trying to evaluate his splitter. Hmm. I saw the cameras out in the bullpen on side sessions in Toronto. I think it's helped Tanaka. I think it can help any pitcher if you buy into it and you're open-minded. You know, let's evaluate the spin on your pitches because the spin is what makes the baseball move. And it seems pretty important and pretty valuable to be able to evaluate that spin with high-speed cameras that slow it down to where you can actually see the rotation of the baseball in 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 a real in in real slow speed. And the good news for the uh, Yankees is they hired Sam Breend, who was one of the you know head honchos at driveline and now is the Yankees organizational pitching coordinator. So they'll yes. have that access firsthand, which is good. It shows you how, you know, we're in the wild West here. You know, teams are playing catch up. That was yeah. a recent hire by the Yankees and Brian Cashman, one of the most progressive GMs out there, he will leave no stone unturned to find the next best thing that'll help his team. And, uh, you know, this is it in my mind. I think it's really important to, to be able to evaluate the spin on pitches from your entire organization. I would start this down at the, the lower rungs of the minor leagues and have it have a continuity through the, through the whole organization that you could evaluate pitchers, you could help develop pitchers, and you could improve pitchers with the, you know understanding how they spin the baseball. David, thank you for doing this again, man. This has been so much fun. Uh, you know, especially, you know, you get done with a game like last night, and and all you really want, if if you're someone like me, is to be able to rap about the game with you. So for me, this is awesome, and for our audience, I know it's equally as fantastic. So thank you. Man. My pleasure. Let's come after a win one time. Yeah, we can exactly. talk about that. Come on, that's right. Hopefully that'll be next week. That's David Cohn filling in for CC. You guys know the deal on R2C2. Download, listen, rate, review, subscribe. New episodes every Thursday. Go Yanks. Peace.